I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Hello, everyone. Can you hear me at the back? Yeah, great. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop to celebrate the publication of Multiples, published by Portobello and edited by Adam Thurwell. To call it an adventure in translation would be an understatement. The book contains 12 stories in 18 languages by 61 authors. We couldn't fit all 61 authors in tonight, but we've had a good go. Um, And we're very lucky to have everyone here tonight. Um, But rather than introduce them all now, I'm going to hand over to the book's editor and this evening's Master of Ceremonies, Adam Thurwell, who will briefly explain the idea behind the book and the format for the evening. Before I do, I just have to say, please watch your wine glasses. Excellent, <laughs> excellent timing, sorry. Please watch your wine glasses um, on the floor when you leave your seats later on. And the fire exits are here and here, sorry, con- contractual obligations. Anyway, with no further ado, please join me in welcoming Adam Thurwell and Team Multiples. <laughs> Um, what I want to do is very, very fast, because as you can see, we've got about 700 writers to get through. Um, I'm going to very quickly explain this quite crazy project and then explain how this evening is going to work. Um, this project called Multiples um, sort of began basically when I had this idea that I would quite like to do something that would contradict the normal way in which translation was talked about, which was that translation is always seen as basically a failure at every point, and so people always want to bring up the untranslatable words. Um, And in opposition, I thought it'd be fun to kind of somehow do some experiment, like a stunt, that would be so crazy and seemingly so dangerous for any kind of survival of poetry or meaning or anything. Um, but somehow, at the other end, things would emerge. And so the idea I came up with was a kind of Chinese whispers uh, in literary form, where um, 
one story would get translated in a sequence in and out of English. Um, so therefore, where only the original translator actually was doing what people normally think of as translation, um, i.e. translating the original text, and everyone else was working at two or three or four removes from the original. Um, the other kind of constraint I added in was I refused to ask actual trained translators who might well know the language and instead asked only novelists, um, some of whom had very good knowledge of the language they were translating from and some of whom Joe Dunthorne <laughs> didn't. Um, so that is the, um, in a nutshell, that is the basic uh, project. Um, I'm having to go very fast um, because of the evening we've got ahead. And so my idea, so that you get a flavour of this, because we ended up with 12 stories often being iterated about five times, um, is we've got three pairs, basically, here. So we've got three stories uh, which were translated, and we've got two of the sequence for each of the story here. So what we're going to do is going to go story by story, and then where each person is going to read out just a page, just to give you a flavour of their translation. Then each translator can have a mini-argument amongst themselves about whose translation is best. Um, <laughs> And then hopefully there'll be time for a more general discussion and then uh, questions, furious responses from, from you. Um, and so the first translate... And then, the, oh, sorry, the other thing I should explain about the project is the choice of the originals. Although it, technically I am the editor of this, really that means I was the emailer. I was just the kind of email inbox. Um, and so in terms of the originals, it's true that I chose a few and I kind of thought, oh, X would be really brilliant for, for this. But in some cases, it was from a language I had no idea about, and so I left it. So David Mitchell, for instance, who speaks Japanese, I said to him, choose whichever story you would like to translate. Um, so I was not responsible for the particular Japanese story. In the same way, um, Zadie Smith had agreed to translate something from Italian, um, but neither really I or Zadie is that expert in Italian literature. So we asked our friend Francesco Pacifico, who is one of the translators as well, a novelist, Italian novelist and critic, um, and translator, um, to choose. So what I'd like, Francesco, do you have the roving mic? You have the roving mic. Um, I want Francesco to explain a little about this author, Giuseppe Pontigia, who is the author of this story, um, of this first sequence. Uh, uh, hello. I don't think I'm going to introduce Giuseppe Montigia, who died uh, about 10 years ago and was a good writer. Um, I'm going to say something about the, the choice. Before Pontigia, I, cho I chose uh, another writer who's living and whose name I won't mention. He's a very distinguished experimental <coughs> Italian writer. And uh, something that happens often with uh, Italian uh, experimental writers is that when you translate them, uh, everything fizzles just disappears, all the all the the allure, all the glamour just disappears. <laughs> Some, they seem to we seem to have no content at all. We just like to <laughs> play strange uh, board games with words. So uh, and that was Zadie's reaction, say that like the story you sent me uh, doesn't make any sense. Sadly the living writer had already been <laughs> told that his story was going to appear on Mercedes <laughs> and someone had to... I had to tell him. That, that's why he's the editor. <laughs> I laughed a lot. And I <laughs> so I decided to, to go uh, for a dead writer, which was better in case Zadie 
wasn't going to like uh, the second story too. But actually, uh, it's a story that um, lends itself well to uh, an English translation because it's very plain and uh, it's about an average man and uh, a man who visits brothers and gets rejected by a priest uh, in the sense that he wants to uh, after his doubts to a priest and the priest is uh, is rude to him so I thought it was going to be good in English and uh, they did <laughs> they did a very good work and uh, you wanted to yeah the one thing well actually maybe we'll come to that after the yeah. So I'm just going to very quickly, since Zadie's not here, I'm going to be Zadie. Um, and so I'm going to read just her first couple of paragraphs. What then happened in that sequence is it was put into Chinese by Ma Jan sitting here. Uh, so Ma Jan's then going to read his first page. So for your Chinese speaking, that will help. Um, and then it was translated by Tash or here. And so Tash is then going to read the equivalent page back into English. So we'll start then with Umbeto Buti, translated by Zadie Smith. And it has an epigraph from J.R. Wilcox, The Book of Monsters. It's true, like all mammals, it has two eyes, a nose, a mouth, and somewhere, four limbs. And it begins like this. He is born in Empoli on the 30th of April, 1931, son of Stefano Butti, holder of a degree in chemistry, and of Concetta Valori, a mathematics teacher at the Technical Institute. His father, director of the, of the Osveco firm, it produces thermal valves, has published three literary articles and five rather minor editorials in Livorno's Telegraph. He often claims to have sacrificed the lettered life for two plus two equals four. He still recalls those Greek and Latin verses of his school days, declaiming them with all the sonority of an auctioneer. He asks his son to name their authors, and each time his son denies all knowledge of them. He dedicates the same attention to modern poetry. He is like a spectator in the gallery, always ready to boo or applause in a manner usually reserved for the efforts of opera singers. For poets, he lies in wait. He has an unbounded admiration for D'Annunzio, whose lyrics he calls sheet music. Really,你们两个，我只好读着短一点。跟你讲，a Tianhuai 主要产品是进口的热力阀。他热爱文学、思想活跃，还在广州日报上发表过三篇文学评论和五篇他翻译的意大利诗歌。OK, <笑> um, okay, I'm, I'm going to read approximately the same, uh, approximately the same um, passage. But before I start, can I just say my my translation is actually very faithful and very respectful. 
So this is what I read from Ma Jian. Um, Just give the new title. The story is now called Tian Hua Yi. This is the absolute truth. Like all mammals, it has two eyes, a nose, and a mouth, as well as long, unevenly placed limbs. That's from On Monsters by J.R. Wade Cook. <laughs> Tian Huayi was born on, 30th, on the 30th of April, 1930, in the war-torn southern Chinese city of Guangzhou. <laughs> His father, Tian Shulin, had studied for a doctorate in chemistry in Italy. His mother, Juliet, a Florentine, had followed her husband to China the previous year and had found a job as a mathematics teacher in a technical skills institute not far from where they lived. His father worked as a sales manager for an Italian company called Scala, whose principal product was imported thermal valves. He was passionate in his love of literature and ideas and had published in the Guangzhou Daily three pieces of literary criticism and five Italian poems in translation. He often bemoaned the fact that he had sacrificed his literary aspirations for the everyday monotony of, of his thoroughly commercial job. And whenever he reflected on his life, he would become nostalgic for his time as a student in Italy, when he used to recite lines of poetry aloud, as bright and clear as the ringing cries of brokers in an auction house. He often tested his son on the names of these poets, but of course, each time, Tian Huayi would simply gaze out of the window at the rivers and hills beyond and shrug his shoulders. Needless to say, this response scarcely added to his father's feeling of self-worth. Um, thank you very much. I, I realize I very briefly failed to introduce Flora, Flora Drew, who is Marjan's translator. Um, I suppose the first thing that is obvious is that um, Marjan has entirely changed the setting of this story. Um, and so, Majan, I just wanted to ask, why did you decide to change the setting? Yeah.呃，我最初接到这个小说的时候，我发现它有一个特点，跟中国小说有点相近，就是它那种很凄凉、很孤独。as soon as I read this story, it struck me at once that it had a very Chinese feel about it, the sense of isolation and, and, and coldness about it. The第二个想法，我就想，作为这个翻译的话，我能否让它在中国还是变成一个有灵魂的一个活的东西？ So immediately I wanted to transplant this story in to China, but to try and find a way to make it to allow it to retain its spirit, its soul. I wanted to keep the, the, the structure and the, and, the, and the chronology, these very important dates, that, um, 1931, 1989, which in China is also very important. But I think that the world is a world, so that although the, the globe is round, but uh, events that happen on one side can be very different from those that happen on the other. So I just brought this character, Tian Huayi, this character, 
but I wanted the main character to be a uh, uh, um, to al allow him to retain some of his Italianness. So he he becomes a uh, uh, a mixed race, a mixed race. Um, his mother is Italian. His father has studied in Italy, and his name itself, Hawaii, is nostalgic for Italy. And in terms of the, tra I mean. I should say that the, I was incredibly free as an editor. I simply said to everyone translating that they seemed they needed to produce what they would consider an accurate copy that was also a live story in the original. So I was completely useless at giving them any parameters. Um, Can I just point out that I actually received fewer instructions than that? I just said, <laughs> my, my instructions are simply <laughs> just translate. <laughs> um, um, and in terms of translation, I'm interested. In your uh, and then uh, in the actual book, um, e not everyone, but most of the translators have offered a mini commentary on what they were doing. Um, and in your commentary, Madame, you say it's mainly question how much characters are shaped by time, place, and language. And I think one of the interesting things for me is in changing. You mentioned that there are very meaningful dates in Chinese history, but in the Pontitia, I'm assuming, Francesca, that they're not meaningful dates at all in Italian history. That they are deliberately unimportant. And so what's interesting to me is that the transposition of place actually changes the meaning of the story because suddenly it becomes very much a political story about why is this person avoiding the great events of the time. Um, so, how, so I suppose my question is how far do you think the, the character can be transposed without changing the meaning or without losing translation? So you你你把它移到中国的时候你就说你你要研究呃一个一个人怎么会被他的时代他的呃那个那个文化被被被影响所以你你把它移到中国你很明显的那些那些呃时代就没办法不避免避开八九年在中国是很重要的一个时候但是
And Tash, you actually, very early on in your commentary, you say, well, one of my problems was how to translate a well-known living writer like Ma Jian. You decided to therefore translate, you tell me, relatively faithfully. Um, do you now regret that? Do you wish you'd completely rewritten it? Do you no, because I, I, don't, I wasn't confident. I mean, I knew that there had been some big changes, but I didn't know what those changes were. And I was afraid that if I, I, if I took further liberties, then um, it would totally become this mush of, of incomprehensibility. Um, and actually, I really liked, I loved the story. I, I, loved, um, I loved sensing what Ma Jian had done to it. Um, and I loved going with those, going along with those changes. Um, I, I think I think that if you if you translate a dead writer, a dead well-known writer who is much translated and who has many versions of, of translations, I think it gives you a certain liberty um, to do something really different and do something really playful. Um, I didn't feel I had that liberty. I didn't feel I, I thought that Jian's work still needed to be sort of fixed in some way to. Um, to provide some sort of English language Although canon. Although one thing you do mention is that you changed the tense. Yes, I did change so the tense. So my Jen's version is in the present mm. tense. Although in Chinese it's very it's fluid, you can... No, there I are also no tenses. Yeah, I mean, I also sense that... Was the original in the present tense? Can you remember? Zaydis. Uh, I would say, yeah. Zaydis yeah, yeah, is in the present tense. I sense that whatever... I mean, I knew that I didn't come from Italian. I thought that it would probably have been done in... I do speak Italian, but if Italian is anything like French, the present tense works in a much more fluid way, and, and, and as it does in Chinese. Um, but I just needed, I thought that it hadn't, because of the time scales and the chronologies, it needed a much more epic scale and epic feeling. Um, so I, I, I changed it into the past tense, which I, I thought fixed it a little bit more. Because I think this is a theme that I think we'll be keep coming back to, is the problem of maybe sometimes, to be accurate, you actually have to change something. That's a kind of paradox that we'll keep going to. One thing about what Majan said, mm. um, the absence of politics in that story is uh, screaming something that is very recognizable for an Italian reader. Uh, it's uh, it's something that is called qualunquismo. Uh, <laughs> it can't. It can't be doesn't originally. <laughs> it can't be to say that, of course. Uh, it's like whateverism or averageism, something like that. And uh, the fact that he's bridging the gap between the fascist era and the democratic era, uh, like effortlessly, is is something that is yeah. central to the story. So what you said is not like. So in fact, it is. So the change is really meaningful. Change the meaning as much. Well, but you you bring you bring that up, whereas in the story is this ghostly absence okay. that an Italian can detect, but maybe in a literal translation, no one would have detected. You leave. So we're now going to move to a new story. This is why we have to have these musical chairs. Hang on. So it's now the Thank you.
So we now move on to an, a new story in this sequence. This one was not, again, not my choice. Um, this one was because I wrote to Javier Marias, the Spanish novelist, saying, would you like to take part in this project? And Javier wrote a very lovely letter back saying, yes, but I'm too busy. So he then uh, said, however, you may be interested in this. And so a long while ago, Javier had written a book called Cuentos Unicos, um, where they were all translations of um, very, very minor writers that only Javier knows about um, from sort of early 20th century, late 19th century British literature. Um, one of them he actually made up himself. Um, and it wasn't this one, he assures me, although I'm slightly dubious. Um, and this is a story. So this is the only English original in the entire book. Um, and it's by a guy called Richard Middleton, who um, in Javier's introduction, which could be pure fiction, um, he says that Richard Middleton was born in 1882 in Staines and died in 1911 after suicide, committing suicide with chloroform um, in Brussels. Um, and so he was a very minor writer, basically, of ghost stories and, and lurid stories. And the story that Javier gave us is this incredibly lurid sort of B-movie of a story. Um, and so I'm going to read just the very first couple of paragraphs of it so you get a flavor of this Edwardian. Um, I think probably we'll, McSweeney's will be the first people to have published since it was ever first published in, I think, 1934. Um, and just to explain the sequence, that was then the English version had therefore obviously already been put into Spanish by Javier. Andrew Sean Greer translated Javier's Spanish back into English. That was put into German by Julia Frank. Antonia Bayet translated Julia's German into English. That English was put into Hebrew by Orly Castle Bloom, and then Adam Folds uh, translated that back into English. This is one of our longest sequences, in fact. Um, so I'll just read the first couple of paragraphs of the story called The Making of a Man. He was a weedy clerkling, and he had missed his way to Vauxhall Station in the middle of the night and was now walking timidly through sordid but singularly unfrequented streets. He was afraid he was missing his last train, but when a stray figure did approach him, he lost his nerve and did not ask the way. He thought it might be a thief. At the same time, he knew that the soaking rain was spoiling his only overcoat, and the thought made him miserable. Why had he not gone to Waterloo, as Murray had suggested? Why had he omitted to borrow an umbrella? Why were there no policemen? He noticed with relief, however, that as he walked along, the houses were improving. They were getting larger and more respectable, and he hoped he might be approaching a main street. Presently, he saw a lighted window shining on the first floor of one of these houses, and as he neared it, the front door swung open and displayed a woman who leant out curiously to peer at him. Simmons was relieved when he saw her sex, because he was not afraid of women. He was very young. <laughs> so I'm... Uh... No, you're, you're not. Oh, I'm not. Um, right. Um, I'm slightly surprised by how close this is. Um, this is out of the German translation of the English. Of the Spanish. Of the Spanish. There he was, an unremarkable little clerk in the middle of the night, haplessly trying to find Vauxhall Station, lost in a labyrinth of mean and twisting streets. He was increasingly afraid that he had missed the last train. But even the thought of asking anyone for directions froze his nerves. 
any passerby could turn out to be a thief. And as the state of his nerves deteriorated, he noticed how the rain was soaking the cloth of his coat, saturating it, ruining it. That really upset him. He worked in the drapery department and so took great care to be smartly dressed. Why on earth had he not gone to Waterloo, as Murray had told him to? Why on earth hadn't he brought an umbrella? And why, why on earth were there no policemen anywhere? But as he hurried on, things changed. The houses became steadily more elegant, larger and smarter. The unremarkable little clerk calmed himself with the hope that surely, maybe at the next corner, he would now find his way. Suddenly, he saw a small light burning. It was in a window on the first floor of one of those houses. No sooner had he turned toward it than the front door opened. A woman appeared, framed in the opening, and looked intently at him. What luck, what a relief for Simmons to have come across a woman. He wasn't afraid of women, although he was very young. <laughs> okay, so mine, as uh, any of you could now tell me, is um, out of the uh, Hebrew, out of the English, out of the German, out of the English, out of the Spanish, out of the English. Um, but uh, that doesn't quite accumulate to a justification of how wayward this version is. Um, uh, it's, this version is called Manhood Strophes. One. It is a question of the separation and joining of bodies, first one and then the other. Two, for example, after his fear of being lost, of poverty and lack of law, comes his anger. The rain is soaking his coat. The wet world penetrates the fine personal fabric. This, quotes, infuriated him. Three, he turns a corner. That's better. Money engorges property. Homes enlarge and separate. They are proud. There is space between them. That's much better. Four. In the darkness, a light coming on like a new thought, which is the body of a woman. The body of a woman in a doorway is a doorway. <laughs> Five. For the achievement of manhood, words are not essential matter. They are link work, ligature, and conveyance. Excuse me, madam, would you kindly tell me the way to Vauxhall Station? Are you a medical student? A medical student? No, I can see that you aren't. Is there anything that I can do for you? Yes, yes, there is. I need help desperately. There, that's done. In through the door. Um, I suppose we should say what this very short story is about, is that he ends up going upstairs where he has to dismember the body of her dead husband. We don't know. We don't know if it's the husband. A man. Um, in exchange for a kiss yeah. and maybe more. We don't know. I think she offers a lot more. She offers a lot more. <laughs> she says um, anything you want, that's more than a kiss. <laughs> he only takes a kiss, though. That's the beginning. Um, um, he's very young. Um, um, and to, I, I, There's one detail that I want to mention purely. It has no real importance, but... Um, in Antonia's commentary, she mentions that she was so uh, that she decided to get a new dictionary to help her with certain <coughs> words, and that she was so enraged by the Oxford English Pocket Dictionary that she bought that she wrote her only Amazon review. 
Um, and so I wanted to see if this was true. So this afternoon I had a look, and it is indeed there. It's the only two-star review of the Oxford English German. <laughs> um, and, and I should assure you that um, the majority of the 11 reviews are all five or four-star, so Antonia's is the only bad <laughs> review. Um, I did have the previous edition of the same dictionary, which did have literary words in it. This one is purely practical. It would be very good if you were a student trying to cross Europe and absolutely useless if you were trying to translate a good short story. <laughs> um, Antonio, I want to start with you, that, um, especially after listening to Adams. You, one, what you say in your commentary is that you believe that a translation be, should be as closely as possible a rendering of the original text. Um, and I want to actually start with the title. Um, the title of Yulia's is Man Verden, and you translate that as manhood, so you turn a verb into a noun. Can you I don't think that yourself? matters very much. <laughs> I think um, what Yulia is saying is he is now becoming a man. You can't call a story becoming a man. It's just ugly. <laughs> but if you call it manhood, I think it means the same thing. I spent, I spent a lot of time thinking about it. Um, I do actually, with respect to Adam, believe that the original writer owns the text in some way, which I think a lot of the translators don't. I think writing is one thing and translating is another. And through Julia's um, German, I got a sense of... Um, the English and the Spanish and Javier Marias loves that period and I could feel that period of English and I did use words that belong to that period in which I would not now use so I was doing my best to produce the kind of thing I thought Javier Marias had read um, and I think I, I, mean, I got it fairly right as to what kind of story it was from what kind of thing when I was a girl my parents had a magazine called Argosy, in which endless, really pretty good short stories were endlessly published. And some of them were by major writers and some of them were by good working writers, because at that time there was a market for short stories, which there now on the whole isn't. And I knew I was translating one of those. And I, I wanted to make it look like the ones I read in bed at the age of about seven um, from Argosy. Um, one of the questions I had was about, I think one of the kind of points of this project in a way was to try and analyse, in one sense, all a translation is, is a series of minute decisions on sentences. Um, and yet, I suppose the kind of game of this project was to sort of say, well, maybe actually something, even if almost there's a mistake in every sentence, that the original will somehow survive. And I'm kind of interested, because if we take the, um, and he was very young, I noticed um, that, in fact, in the original, it just says um, he was very young. There's no... It's just a sentence on its own. And Yulia... Um, and Andrew Sean Greer says he was, after all, very young. Then when Yulia translates it, she actually translates after all as obvol, which is, in fact, mm -hmm. although. And so that adds, actually... It's interesting. Do you think that the although changes the meaning? Um... I'm, it does a bit, yes. But I still think that the meaning comes through more or less as the original yeah. writing was. I don't think anything serious happens to it in the, uh, in the previous English version. I think, um, listening to all this, I think Julia's 
is slightly more formal than the original. Than the original. Um, and I guessed that the original was slightly chattier than Julia, but I was translating Julia. Because um, you talk about a similar moment in your commentary that there's um, a quite ghoulish moment where she asks Simmons to put on the dead man's clothes. Um, and the original says, and, of the, and they look at each other. And the, in the original, Middleton writes, and of the two, hers was the greater wonder. Uh, which Maria says, y de los dos, el de ella era el mayor asombro. I, I don't speak Spanish, by the way, so I've no idea if that was how you pronounce it. Um, Andrew Sean Greer translated that, and would you guess it, she was more astonished than he. Uh, which Julia says, und anen si vi, si staunte mechtig. Um, which you translated as, she was horribly shocked. And you say you had a huge problem. Could you? I did have a huge problem, yes. I, I didn't know what she meant by, si staunte mechtig. You mean by wit? What you mean? You didn't know what she was shocked by. No, I didn't know quite the weight of the shock. Right. It sounded perfectly all right in German, but I couldn't work out a translation for Mechtig. I understood it, but I couldn't. Um, it was sort of painting. Hmm? Is it, is that sort of painting? No, it's just Mechtig. Sie staunte Mechtig. She was very shocked, but Mechtig is strong, it's mightily. She was mightily shocked, but you can't translate it that way because it's not that sort of story, it's not that sort of prose. Yeah. Um, so I, I really did have trouble with it. I found it as an interesting thing about translation. If you write it down as literal as you can and then go away for two days and write something else, when you come back to look at it, you can work out which things you can fiddle with in which things have to be left as close as you can get them to what original you think you're reading, which in this case wasn't very. <laughs> I mean, but um, actually it wasn't bad. I don't know what you think. I think all the versions are quite like each other until we reach yeah. Adam. Is this <laughs> but I can't read Hebrew. Um, and that, so to bring us to that, um, why, why did you decide on this? <laughs> um, well... Uh, partly it's because you asked me to. Um, as I rec- actually, my um, Hebrew is such as it ever was is very decayed. So I, uh, I learnt it 20 years ago, um, and so the process uh, that I undertook was I met up with uh, uh, an Israeli uh, who spoke very good English, um, and together one morning in a cafe we uh, went through Orly Castlebloom's text, and she. Um, kind of spoke, improvised a translation which I noted down and I wanted to make keep that as kind of uh, informal and as flexible as possible for uh, me to then kind of engage with uh, a fairly kind of malleable text. As it turns out, what, um, what, what occurred is the proof of uh, uh, what we've been hearing um, about this project uh, a number of times, which is that translation is actually a very robust process and this kind of off the cuff um, translation that we came up with uh, together um, was very like uh, the translation that you made um, uh, and then which felt um, kind of unsatisfying on some uh, level um, so in kind of conversation with you um, via email the decision kind of arose to um, exacerbate the idea that translation is 
an act of reading, which is an act of interpretation. So what I then undertook to do was to make a kind of... This is also partly incited by the kind of rather inchoate um, nature of this text, is that I kind of analysed it, and I uh, patterned in a way that I found more satisfying for myself than I did in the text it, itself, um, the kind of the imagery and the, and the meaning of the text. Um, so I, I kind of... I, it's like a kind of crystallography of this... Yeah what's going on in the text and, and I make strong interpretive decisions and I, and I make them very overt um, and in a way it's, it kind of uh, exposes a thought process that translators might have but, uh, but would, would be buried beneath yeah. the surface of the, of the act um, of translation because one of the interesting things about your version is that actually it seems to me the real we're, you're almost rewriting T.S. Eliot is what's going on that, yeah. um, it's very much it seems to me Engaging with the early poetry of Eliot, so it's kind of proof rock in the wasteland. Um, so, why, did, like, is it purely just the period, or was there another reason why you felt that Eliot was the right medium? Um, it occurred to me to do, and I couldn't, um, and I was in a mood where that was kind of enough Fine. To, to, to some extent. <laughs> I mean, it made, it made, it was a way for me to get a hold of this text, part of that interpretive process is me kind of putting it in the constellation of things that I that I know um, and that uh, that does that in quite an extreme way so um, there's stuff in the story about um, the sea um, and when I take that on a step further and I uh, and I make that specifically about Margate which is mentioned in the wasteland there's that those famous lines on Margate sands I can connect nothing with nothing and that seemed to me a part. I mean, it's kind of possibly a, a cheap way of doing it, but that is part part of my wanting to kind of deepen uh, uh, the my sense of the text. And how far? I mean, my last question on this: um, Do you feel that on now reading the original, as it were, or as much the original you can read, do you think that there's, as it were, something has survived in your? Do you think there's the the, the tone, as it were, that you've made up in your version is? linked to the tone of the original, or do you think back then nothing to do with each other? Um, I, f I feel secure about my interpretation of it, but I would not impose that on Middleton. But it re it's, So it's true for my understanding of Middleton's text, but um, it's not, it, I can't, I can't uh, give it to Middleton as his, if that makes sense. What did you think of Adam's version when you read it? Um, it frightened me. Um, because I do have this deep belief that writing is more important than translation and that it is the, this is the sound it is the duty of the translator to get as close to the original text as he or she can you however has made this impossible for us it wasn't, it wasn't Adam who made it impossible it was you with your game and as a game it's very nice yeah but as a way of life, it's terrible. Yeah. <laughs> I think With that, sorry. you should leave. <laughs> uh, we, we come to our last pair. So the uh, the last um, last story of the night um, 
This one, the original, was written by an Arabic writer, a Lebanese writer, Yusuf Habji al-Ashkar. He was born in 1929. Um, and again, I didn't choose this story. <laughs> um, I asked Rawi Haga um, to choose something from Arabic that um, he knew hadn't been translated. Um, and so he chose, he chose this, um, and he wrote... Um, for those of you who are going to buy the book, you will then discover more about Yusuf Habji al because he wrote a very interesting uh, introduction to his biography. And basically, he describes him as the first contemporary Arab existentialist writer. Um, and so Rawi sent me his, what I presume was very faithful version um, of the Arabic in, in English. Um, that was then sent to the French novelist Tristan Garcia, um, Tristan's version was sent to Joe Dunthorne. Joe's version was sent to Francesco for Italian. And then Vendor de Vida translated um, Francesco's Italian back into English. Uh, so as normal, I think I'll just read just the first uh, couple of paragraphs of Rawi's version so you get a vague idea of what it should have been in the original. And then we'll, then we'll move on. Uh, so this was called The Four Seasons Without a Summer. First season. The coffee shop is spacious, with comfortable chairs and tables made of walnut wood, or possibly formica. Secretly, I stroke the table without letting the waiter, leaning against a marble column, see me. The table is smooth, it's formica, no matter how carefully the wood is polished, traces of death are still present at its edges. The bar's long and ends with the coffee machine. The waiter distances himself from his column. Now that he's moved, a glaze of light shines on the pillar's black marble. There are just a few customers. My gaze wanders onto the surface of the window. On the glass, people and things appear distorted. The glass shapes them. The glass is a mirror, a falling wave. And although I'm familiar with this place, I'm now lost between its exterior and interior. I'm confused by the reflection of a woman in a red dress, and I wonder if I saw her already, standing at the bottom of the stairs or in the lobby of the cinema. But what's the difference? What does it matter if she was here or there? Women are alone wherever they stand. Her red dress reminds me of my first wife. But of course, it can't be her, unless it's her ghost. But I don't believe in ghosts. Only ghosts believe in themselves. Um, <clears throat> my translation's called Four Seasons with Two Summers. <laughs> first season. I bought a... I bought a device that can switch off over 700 models of television. It has two modes, non-stealth and stealth. It fits inconspicuously onto my keychain. This would be my favorite cafe bar if the televisions were off. One shows Iranian soap operas and the other Arabic news. There are long mirrors that the barman uses to surreptitiously watch them. He faces outward as though awaiting an order, but his mind is somewhere else. Two. The cafe bar is cave-themed. It is called the Long Dark Cave, and the walls are papier-mâché or polystyrene painted brown. There are nooks and bumps. Stalactites hang beside the televisions. On the way to the bathroom, there's a tiny man-made waterfall. It is strange that I described the televisions before I mentioned the cave theme. <laughs> Every year it wins the Gazette's award for best-themed cafe bar. The mirrors, face, the mirrors face each other, making it look like there are many hundreds of interconnected chambers. 
London has man-made tunnels, but no cave systems. It has hills, but no mountains, and it rarely experiences extreme weather. It's the week before Christmas, so they've sprayed fake snow on the windows. Three, the TV news is loud and the internal speaker is distorting. I worry for the bartender's ears, particularly his left. He only hears the soap opera when a character is involved in something big, like a car accident. His interest lies in high drama beyond language. There is a quite beautiful woman at the far end of the bar eating Turkish breakfast and watching the Iranian soap. My device is in stealth mode. I calculate the angles so that my signal bounces off the mirror behind the bar, then off the opposite mirror before hitting the far television. I am clearly a dead eye as the soap opera immediately disappears. The quite beautiful woman squints. It was getting to a good bit. She has a slice of cucumber in her right hand that she throws down on her plate. She points to the black screen and calls the barman by his full name. I usually call him Buddy. I'm smiling at my hands because the cafe is nearly its perfect self. While he is looking for the remote, I turn off the news as well. I did a, a fairly literal translation of uh, Joe's version. I just wanted it to sound very casual and nice, and I I kept everything because um, there's no money in uh, writing novels in Italy. So I've been a translator for a decade, and I'm 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 sloppy but loyal to the text. <laughs> I, can, I only do it once. I never go back. <laughs> but the, that one time, I'm very loyal to the text. So I, I read a very short bit. Quattro stagioni, due stati. Prima stagione. Uno. Londra. Comprato apparecchio che spegne 700 e passa modelli di televisore. A due setting. Non stealth e stealth. I like keeping English words in my translation. A due setting, non stealth e stealth. Non ingombra, lo tengo nel portachiavi. Questo sarebbe il mio bar preferito se tenesse spenti i televisori. Uno dalle soppe iraniane e l'altro il TG arabo. Ci sono lunghi specchi da cui il barista guarda la TV di nascosto, cioè è rivolto alla sala come aspettasse gli ordini, ma ha lo sguardo perso. Il bar è a tema, si chiama La Caverna. È lungo e stretto e i muri sono di cartapesta o polistirolo e dipinti di marrone, con rientranze e protuberanze. Accanto ai televisori pendono delle stalattiti. Prima del bagno c'è una cascatella artificiale. È strano che ho descritto i televisori prima di dire che è un bar a tema. Thank you. Um, and we'll actually never know if Francesco was loyal because um, the next version by Vendela Vida, which is called Four Seasons, Two Summers, begins, I'm just going to give you the first sentence, begins, Stockholm. <laughs> I'm at the bar Riche, waiting for Ulrika, who was an au pair for my neighbor's family. <laughs> Um, Francesco, um, I want to start. Um, you describe, you know, in your in your commentary, you say that you've been a translator, and you um, say that you always want to be very literal. You say trying to give your aim is always to try and give sentences a sense of wholeness, um, being very literal. Um, and then there are two moments that I noticed though where you're not literal. Where um, there's a moment where Joe describes his thingy, and you say that actually you don't translate it as that, and then you say, but I don't care. 
and I don't care because writers are not translators. I don't think they're really interested in meaning, they're more interested in sound. Oh, you mean the, the sentence about the stealth thing where I explain what the thing is? Yeah. Yeah, the thing is, I recently translated John Jeremiah Sullivan's Palpad, and uh, in this decade of translation work, uh, um, um, publishing houses uh, often gave me a hard time, you know, don't keep this world, don't change this. And then I, I, I figured out that when the writer is actually alive, I can call him and convince him to change it. <laughs> and every time I do that, uh, writers are always uh, okay with me because they say, I explain how ugly it sounds in Italian if I translate it. They say, no, 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 I don't want it to sound like that. So like every one of you has got their other versions of themselves sounding really ugly elsewhere because some translator really wants to keep the meaning right. So every time you ask a writer, okay, this is the way it sounds in Italian, and I just give a very ugly sounding version. <laughs> <laughs> I say, no, 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 please don't keep it like that. Let's change it. I say, so you change it. Okay, so, uh, and this is what I did with my translation with my uh, American editor, which is actually English. Uh, we, we changed a lot of jokes because they couldn't just be translated and yeah. uh, and the, the my translator wasn't even involved in that because he didn't want to 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 change it so we did it ourselves so i think being unloyal in a way is being loyal when uh, you cannot keep the sense that writing is good and awesome and handsome okay so translators are often against handsome um, but no just antonio do you think that are those two positions contradictory, or do you think there's a way in which you're saying that like, your position of that the writer, literality, as it were, is, is crucial? Um, no, I would accept what you said, that um, you can argue about whether something sounds really terrible if literally translated. Um, I'd like to offer you an example of a problem which is related to that. Um, Philip Henshaw and I tend to write dialogue that goes, he said, she said, she said, he said. We use the verb said. Neither of us can persuade our French editors to do any such thing. It has to be remarque, cria, um, and so on. And, and, and they will not. And it looks horrible to me because I think in English you shouldn't keep putting these over-emotional verbs in. And the French say it is so ugly if you just say detail, yeah. detail. Mm. And that's what I take that out. In Italian, I often take the he said, she said out. It's just really impossible to read. It, well, this is something to do with the, the rhythm of the language itself, which one also has to respect. But nevertheless, when I read it in French, it makes me feel slightly ill. <laughs> um, you had a problem with repetition in your translation, you told me once. Yeah, and it's interesting. I mean, actually, I, in French. I often... French seems to be one of the problems because they have a very different, a very set idea of what is good style. Um, and so even when you say, no, but I know this is slightly deliberately odd, it's much more odd <laughs> in the French and therefore it's therefore not quite right. And it's interesting that I actually, one thing's in, in a recent Paris Review piece that Lydia Davis wrote about her translation of Madame Bovary, she says something very similar where she says, there is something about the formality of the French that I find compelling, or perhaps what I find compelling is that even if the French is more formal out of limited resources, its formality is part of its distinctive character, and I would be very hesitant to change that, even if an equivalent formality in English is not really equivalent, but more formal, because we are, in our tradition, less formal. Mm. Um, <laughs> and that seems to be basically the same problem. Um, mm. But Joe, because you then also say that you hope... Actually, I think you need to explain slightly your translation methods. 
because um, well, it was slightly different to some people's. Well, my, I should also explain, and Adam knew this when he asked me to translate from French, that I don't speak French, so that was <laughs> uh, stage one. And, um, so it was, and, and also, I don't think you said to me, uh, what was the phrase you used earlier on, that you, you whatever feels the most authentic... I believe you used the word explode. Uh, <laughs> and so I was, I was going into it with no sense of loyalty to, um, to the original. To a Frenchman. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I ha only have schoolboy French. I could probably order a croissant. Uh, and, um, and so... In a restaurant. And I put it into Google Translate, as I think lots of people in this book use Google Translate, but basically for me it was just Google Translate. And the original story, as you hear if you read Ra Rawi's one, is quite an existential story that relies a lot on tone. And putting an existential story that relies on tone through Google Translate, you probably don't need to be told, <laughs> doesn't result, that result in a very appealing story. And so I was left with either choosing to try and do what I suspected would be, would be a very, very bad job of authentically translating the story and either that or do, which is what I would, did do is decide to completely scrap it and have the story I'm the French story I worked on just appear through the story in the cracks like the TVs in my story are translated lines and so it's like it's more that the French version is a kind of one of a number of voices that creep through um, and then just to finish and then I think we'll have to open it to, um, to questions um, you do then finish saying that you hope that something of the original is still there um, yeah. now that you've read them do you feel your hope was justified no <laughs> no I don't and you know, I think go looking, if I could go back, I think I would, even though I'm sure I would do a bad job, I think I would prefer to do the, the real translation, even but if it resulted in a Although you wrote story. a really good short story. Well, I, I like my story, but it has no... The relationship with the, <laughs> with the original is so strange and, and unhelpful. Everyone hates um, Arabic existentialism, I think. <laughs> this was a strong reaction... By everyone, uh, only Rowie liked this story. It's true. <laughs> Every single writer I sent this to said, "Can I change no, it?" No. <laughs> How many writers did you send it to? Well, I mean, all the, uh, no one said no, but I just mean each person who said yes said, "I'm going to change it." Right. <laughs> um, uh, I think we should open it out to to, to you. Um, talk to us. Um, I don't know whether you how we'll do this. There's one, one, more got, yeah. one more chair. One more chair. Um, I'll pass the mic around, but if you could give it straight back to me and I'll get it back to the panel so they can all... Uh, I've, I've got a question for you, Adam. Yeah. Um, you don't seem to have been motivated by finding writers who actually spoke the languages they were translating into very well. <laughs> what, what, why did you choose the writers you chose um, to translate? Actually, I think this has given us like the... Um, in fact, I'd say probably most people did speak it fluently or near-fluently. Um, I'd say two or three people, like Joe, you might have been one of the probably the worst. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, 
it's true that certainly, well, so when I'm saying not fluent, I'm not meaning kind of absolutely no knowledge. I'm simply meaning um, these were people who wouldn't necessarily have thought of themselves as being adequately equipped. That's all I mean. Um, so that while their knowledge was good, um, some people were bilingual. I mean, like you know, you're basically bilingual. You know, like there's not. Um, I'd say a lot were bilingual, and that was part of one of the things that actually. One of the motivations for it was realizing how many of my friends and how many writers I knew were bilingual for various reasons. You know, Gary Steingart is kind of speaks both Russian and English, and kind of so. Um, yeah, I think we've maybe given an overly kamikaze impression here um, that actually most people were, if not fluent, they were pretty competent. Um, I would, the problem with organising 60 writers is that um, some of them, so yeah, so with Gary Steingart, I knew that he liked Daniel Harms, so I chose a story um, that I thought Gary would like and kind of um, be short enough for Gary's attention span to actually um, translate. Um, and then he he completely changed it. Um, uh, but actually, that one is very interesting because he changed nearly all the details. But in fact, that was a very interesting example, I think, of where the whole point of that story was structure. And so um, it didn't matter that he changed, as it were, the nouns because everything was about... Um, that was one of the most interesting ones for me, I think. Um, but so in, just to finish the question, so in terms of choosing people, it kind of went... Well, partly, once it was this issue of McSweeney's, we realised that my initial intention had been to go from language to language without necessarily going in and out of English. But then we realised that subscribers to McSweeney's might be a little upset if they couldn't really read anything. So um, we decided that it would keep going in and out of English as much as possible. That, therefore, added the constraint of who I could choose each time because I was therefore... Because I wasn't totally kamikaze, I was trying to find people who roughly spoke the language. So... Um, it partly meant that there were more French writers in this than I think would I would necessarily have chosen if I had a free hand, um, because that was everyone, and I would have had, as it were, or I would have loved to have had more Russian. Russian writers, it turns out, don't reply to emails for six months. Um, so they were too late. Um, so there were things like, so it was a very, like, the amount of happenstance that's in this project is quite huge. But there was also that, the whole question about... Um, Translation versus versus style, which you've talked about at previous sessions, which is how um, what the, the whole the big question that this throws up is how much um, someone who's a professional novelist or you know, who writes novels, fiction as their primary job, rather than translates as their primary job, how much that style then exerts itself over trans the, the skill and the art of translation, and whether or not fiction writers or, or novelists um, are able to resist their urges. Extra fictive <laughs> urges, um, <laughs> which I think is, yeah, which is I think um, you know, which I think is is, a, is one of the joys. Yeah. Of the and it's true. And also, I did because I was really interested in why it was that so few novelists, as it were, did you know that a lot of us are used to being translated, but very rarely do translations. And so, the kind of it was like the byproduct of wanting people to be doing the first translation they'd ever done was therefore some people were slightly nervous as it were about their linguistic abilities uh, having uh, lived with a translator for a few years I've learned that the translation community can be quite quick to respond to perceived slights or um, people trespassing on their turf How, what kind of response have you had from, from translators as a whole um I don't know, actually. Um, like, um, I'm, I can see the president of the British Centre for Literary Translation in the audience, so I don't know if we want to pass him the mic and he can... 
<laughs> you can shout at us. We, we uh, love this, of course. Um, <laughs> well, I think what's quite interesting, and it kind of follows on from what Adam was saying, is actually there are lots of translators in this book, but they just aren't the English language writers. Because when you say that most novelists don't translate, this is true in the English-speaking world, but this isn't true anywhere else, yeah. or at least not in most places. So Marias is quite a nice example because it's quite hard to find a Spanish novelist who doesn't also translate. So in fact, from our point of view, at least from my point of view, I wouldn't presume to speak on behalf of the clan. Um, <laughs> actually, there are a lot of translators who are, who are uh, involved in this, and it's quite interesting to see how they work differently from the English-language writers who... Uh, who for whom this is a sort of uh, a, a, a debut. I mean, I think I know a lot of people, a lot of translators who did, who heard the kind of one-line description of what this book was and thought, why the hell would you not use translators if this is a nice, big, interesting game about translation? You would think that maybe someone who knows how to translate might be. Um, <laughs> not, not a completely crazy thought. On the other hand, the moment you read, for example, Adam's introduction and you get a sense of what, um, of why this choice was made, and specifically, as Tash was just saying, this idea that if you bring novelists in, what you're doing is you're trying to put as much pressure as possible on this style and see what survives. Um, all the translators I've talked to about this, the ones who kind of twitched slightly when they heard the, the original sort of idea, when you kind of explain, when you give them the, the two or three or four sentence explanation of why this happened, I think people understand that this is actually quite an interesting and sort of valid and it's al it's also supposed to be a playful thing I don't think yeah. so what he's saying is they loved it anxious. they loved it <laughs> um, um, yes it's, it's true that the other thing I found interesting about reading it it's a very strange object to read I mean I don't know if you could read it kind of all the way through you might go crazy um, but this question of style is at what point I find it very interesting kind of whether you create a collective style for each story kind of at what point is Tash's version of Marjan's version of Zaidi's version of the original Italian, are you creating? Is it always is, is Tash's version just Tash's style, or is it in some way some weird amalgam of everybody? I think that's one of the things that, and it's kind of an unanswerable question, but it was certainly one of the things um, I was interested in. I mean, like, I'm just did any of you? So, in a sense, I think everyone, Antonia, you must be the one in a way who was trying most to find another style that wouldn't be the normal way you'd write. It sounds like. I think I have a simple passion for words and I don't normally think of my style I look at a different level for the right word for this sentence so if I'm which means I can write I hope different sorts of sentences in different contexts when I'm translating I want to write the sort of sentences that are in the text as they stand and yeah. um, so I, I don't have the latitude I don't allow myself the latitude to improve a sentence. Um, I used to have terrible rows with my unfortunately now dead French translator about this because he would occasionally ring up and he would say, this sentence I think is meaningless. So I would say, no, it isn't. It's perfectly all right. Just translate it. So he said, on your head, be it. And he, he, we went on like that. But in fact, um, I, I didn't read his translations and they were apparently so embroidered. <laughs> As, uh, any, but they worked. Um, I think I think it really is. I have this sort of word-by-word -word respect for words. Um, and style is a thing I never think about. So, in a sense, the whole project, you know, your idea that perhaps we might find a communal sense of what style was, 
leaves me trundling along at my one word at a time level, sort of yeah. not, not with you. There's a gentleman at the back. Uh, sorry, I'll stand up. The, <clears throat> the thing that excited me when I heard what you were talking about, Adam, so I think we've got a lot of feedback here, so can I just project? The thing that excited me was the idea of replication of the oral tradition. Um, so the question. Adam, sorry, yeah, sorry. You're going to summarise for us. Sorry, um, carry on. Uh, for those of you, <laughs> um, so it's basically, you're saying about that for you, the interest was, as it were, some kind of going back to an oral tradition um, where various versions would be made, almost by memory, as it were, of kind of the same story. Um, actually, and, uh, which reminds me that one of my favourite of the, I think the the least justified um, translation method was Sjorn's, uh, the Icelandic writer. Um, if I can quickly find it, he describes what he did. Um, and Sjorn was translating um, a Dutch original at about six removes by the time he'd got to it. And he was technically meant to be translating Jeff Eugenides. Um, and this is what Sjorn did. Floki Sigur Jonsson, my 13-year-old son and a native Icelandic speaker, was given half an hour to memorize Jeffrey Eugenides' translation. <laughs> I refrained from reading the source text. <laughs> Three weeks after listening to Flocky's oral retelling of Jeffrey's story, I wrote it down from memory. I have not compared the two. <laughs> um, so uh, I suppose there's the pure... You've got an Icelandic saga in miniature in that story. Um, yeah, it's true. I don't know. I mean, I, I suppose it's, a, it's true that, in a sense, what's really at stake is what, what survives. And it's true that style is one way of talking about it, but... Um, it's intriguing, actually, what content survives as well. Like, it always amuses me in Marjan's, but in that thermal valve survives <laughs> um, somehow rather pure. And that whereas was, that other was the one word I had to look up. <laughs> the translation from the. Do you have the? I don't know my. And that was thermal valves was the one word I had to look up in the dictionary. Okay. Um, um, but yeah, and even in, in Wendela, so Wendela Vida, when she did her version of uh, Francesco, she did a, which, the way she describes it, she, she, she did a basically a literal version and then decided that, like everybody, she hated the original story. <laughs> um, and so she completely just wrote a new story, um, but with that in her mind. And, but then what is intriguing is she said she wrote it a long time after the original, kind of the, her first translation but then in retrospect realised that there are actually many details of this story that she wanted to write anyway, that was basically a short story she'd be meaning to write, and yet there were kind of structural details of mother-in-laws and dead mother-in-laws and kind of... So there's something kind of weird about it. And I think... The other word I think that I was kind of is tone as well. Like I think, Tash, at one point you talk about tuning in to Marjan's version. And one thing that I do, does interest me is in how many of these things where it really should have got utterly destroyed, often... 
millions of details are gone, but the tone has actually remained the same. I no, no, because I think what, what I was tapping into was that same radio frequency, because Majian said earlier about how he located the Chineseness in Zadie's story. And I think that's to do with tone. It's a kind of, I mean, the story's about um, isolation and loneliness and someone who's sort of quite rootless in a quite a rapidly changing world. And he tapped into that, and I tapped into that, I think. And that's why I think that group of stories remains tonally quite unifying. While being very different. Yeah, while yeah. being very different. Because the story was good. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, any more questions? Or is that? My name is Ben. Uh, Adam, uh, you choose your subject very well, I have to say. Uh, for me, this was not a wasted evening. Um, <laughs> no applause, okay. Um, what I kind of miss is basically how you, how you define translating. Um, so I, I, I could sort of come up with a few things like from the legal uh, world, if you have a text, you can have an historical interpretation. Uh, you can go by the word, by the text itself. Uh, you can go by, um, well, things like history, the historical interpretation. Um, and of course, what was the intention of the writer? And then, you know, the receiver, the, the language it's translated into uh, has to be kind of uh, understood. So I mean, all these aspects, um, play a role in, I would say, translation. The fascinating thing uh, I find about translating a translation into another translation to, of course, compare the beginning and the end, and it happens to be in English, well, fine. Um, so, I mean, that's one of the fascinating things. And it's also like you could compare that with oral uh, history. Um, if you look for people uh, for your project, go to the Netherlands. They speak at least two languages apart from their own. Uh, usually three or four, so maybe that would help. Well, we d we have three Dutch writers in in this anthology. We have Eel Schneiders is one of the originals, and then Seyson Noteboom does one of the translations, and Arnon Grunberg. Um, it's true that who both speak seventeen languages fluently. <laughs> um, uh, I think that, that I don't know if I want to give a definition of translation because I think the point of this was to think absolutely the ideal should be the replica, as it were. But then since it can never be a replica. That a book I've liked very much recently is David Bellos, who's a very good translator, his book on translation, where he says the most you can help hope for is that it's a likeness in certain ways, and you'll have to you can never match the original in every way because it's quite literally a different language. So you have to choose where the likeness should be. Um, and I think what I found, I suppose the issue which I think has come up a lot tonight, which is I think the real interest for me, is it's even with the best of intentions to, as it were, if the ideal is just to get the same thing into the new language, often that might involve changing it, and that's the kind of um, that's the deep paradox of it. And that and it really depends. The other thing I found interesting about this is really the ethical problem. Because I think Antonio, you're absolutely right. I think it's, there's a question of property here, um, of whose text this is, um, which in one sense is obvious, which is it's the original writers. Um, but I think there's a very interesting thing to me of the difference between the ethics of it if you're a kind of novelist translator. Novelists obviously feel slightly more able to plunder and steal um, as opposed to translated translators who it seems to me are more morally um, careful but at the same time they have the same problem which is they'll never be able to do the, the, the swadies on perfect translation. Um, Can I ask a 
Yes. Not to me, not to you. Yes, to you. And what example, what instructions did you give everyone? Just pictures from it seems to be that the instructions varied. I think they did vary because, oh, sorry, they varied simply if people kept on emailing me back with more questions. So then I was forced <laughs> into more. Um, I think to, it's true that occasionally I was a bit more provocative. Um, so it's true that um, with the <laughs> Rowie Varga story that no one liked, um, I got more and more desperate. And so I think I did start to get more and more expansive. And just so I, I may well have used the word explode. I don't know. <laughs> uh, it I doesn't sound like a word I'd use. It's also worth explaining to everyone that. The, 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 which I don't think has been properly explained, which is that we're, we were doing, doing basically doing blind translations, so I wasn't allowed to, oh, to yeah, bring up yeah. Flora or Matien and say, what did you mean by this word? Which you normally, if you're working with a writer, you would be able to. You'd say, actually, where was this person born? I mean, what, what, are the context, what is the context? So we weren't allowed any communication, and we were only just given a text. Yeah, the, the intention was to entirely cripple you all. That's definitely true. <laughs> You've got to all stop talking to me. <laughs> no, no, not to you. Um, about what is translation in this context, um, uh, in Adam's defense, I want to say that uh, this book has two points, I think. One is uh, there's a huge market of translated literature and nobody ever checks what is happening there. So, like, in the, in the English-speaking words, uh, less uh, stuff is, uh, is read in translation, but, for example, in Italy... Like I, I have a, a good look of what is happening to English being translated, and I know that it's not a very good picture. That uh, every publishing house has a way of uh, uh, cheating on what sort of English they want to to have in Italian. And uh, for example, the publishing house I started translating with were friends of mine. Like every, like Rick Moody, Dave Foster Wallace, uh, and George Saunders, sort of sound same and <laughs> no one no one really talks about it so in a way we have to make asses of ourselves uh, in order to bring that up because it can be a source of uh, interest and enjoyment but you have uh, to be open about it so the market goes on even the distinguished market goes on and no one ever says anything about it we make a fool, fools of ourselves and, and we bring the process up Okay, and the other thing is the thing about the oral tradition. Like, we want to see what sticks and what's interesting about a story. It can be a sentence, it can be the turn of a phrase, and it can be the story, the subject matter. Sometimes you talk about a book you're reading in another language, and, and you get people's attention just by saying what the book is about. And sometimes you have to read a line. So there's many, there's many treasures, and, and, and this uh, book goes to show that it's not always the the one thing, one thing that matters that's always different things so you don't have to be uh, rigid about it Thank you um, It's just that the fact that you chose creative writers to, to do translations I would have thought that it was their duty as creative writers to actually interpret things creatively and to add their own slant um, otherwise it seems as though why wasn't it translators who were translating the story if it was meant to be kind of a replica or truthful translation surely as creative writers that you've chosen isn't that their duty to be creative on the slide um, yeah I mean I don't, I don't know if anyone the duty was um, I mean it's true that the reason for I think it was more of 
the reason for choosing writers was really to think that these people who are so used to writing in their own voice and what would happen if they were kind of basically forced into potentially not writing in that voice or what, or would they would they then morph the thing back to sound like them um, so for me like, I think I'd morph by the word freedom of like yes they have a kind of you know well basically it was the freedom of the project itself because they weren't being paid to do a they weren't working for Penguin Classics as it were or you know that there was no employer-employee relationship here where they had a certain duty so they were free in that sense um, so yeah the game was definitely with, 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 with rewriting almost rather than just writing I mean, if you were a creative writer, and creative is a word I never use, if you were a writer, why not write your own story rather than mess up somebody else's? Okay, I'm going to give you an example. There is a piece. I'll give you an example. Everyone will write you. I think What Wash 都可以通过他的语言表达的，这正是这本书最有意思的一点。So but as a, as, a, as a writer um, attempting this, this task of translation, um, there is always that desire to go to, go to, the, to push language to its extremes to see how far you can take it, what, what that, 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 that desire to, 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 to break boundaries. Should we stop there? Is that, I don't know how much time. Yeah, I think, I think we're all done, aren't we? Um, thank you very much for your questions. Thank you all for your patience with our lack of microphones and the feedbacky stuff. Thank you, Adam and the Multiples panel. Thank you very much. Thank you.
books are on sale. We have a really interesting programme of events coming up over the autumn, so do sign up for our email newsletter if you haven't already. And we also do a strand, uh, our World Literature Series, which covers and investigates all sorts of interesting elements about translation. So there are events coming up, and there are events that have already passed, that we're, we've recorded, that will be featured on our new website for our 10th birthday, woo, in um, mid-October, I believe. So sign up, look at the website, and hopefully listen to the event again if we, if we can get it online. Again, thanks very much.